everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today we're talking to Erin Shannon. Erin is a PhD student at the University of York and she is looking at how universities in England and the US respond to sexual violence on their campuses and she's also had experience as an activist and as a research associate looking at sexual violence so let's dive in hello erin welcome to talking research uh, lovely to have you here and just to get started do you want to tell us about yourself and um introduce yourself in a way that you'd like to be introduced Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Asmita. I'm very looking, very much looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, my name is Erin Shannon. I am currently a third-year PhD student in the Department of Education at the University of York in England. I previously studied uh, gender violence and conflict at the master's level um, in University of Sussex, also in England. And I am originally from New Jersey in the U.S., where I did my undergraduate degree in English literature and women's and gender studies at the College of New Jersey, or TCNJ. I have a bit of an activist background um, in sexual violence. In 2015, I underwent um, a training with a local charity called Woman Space. Uh, it was an 80-hour training, and at the end of which I was a certified crisis intervention advocate, which meant that I could call out um, to uh, people who had reported sexual violence or domestic violence locally. And I'm also a current volunteer with IDAS, the Independent Domestic Abuse Service in Yorkshire. And what made you go research paths, especially looking at university responses to campus sexual violence? So in terms of research, um, my background is in feminist research. And feminist research, I think, is very different from traditional research uh, in that it's very much about the interplay between theory, which is usually generated from um, universities, and practice generated by activists. Um, so we see these things as impacting on one another. Uh, so research for me is not just sitting in you know, a university room and contemplating big questions. It's also about how can the work that I'm doing in the university actually impact and make things better for people. So there's mm -hmm. a very strong uh, practical element to my research, which is why I'm doing it. Mm. Um, and then in terms of why I'm studying sexual violence in universities specifically, um, at my undergrad, I was very much involved with um, the student conduct office. So I would sit on, um, I believe then it was called the community standards board. So we would hear uh, conduct cases. Um, and then as well as Title IX, which is the US's um, federal kind of uh, legislation around sexual violence. Um, it's very broad. The only thing it says, it's one sentence, um, and it says sex discrimination is not allowed in any educational institution. So it uh, expands beyond universities to um, K through 12 as well. Mm. But I was very much involved with that um, as an activist and as a student. So I had uh, kind of a practical working knowledge of what this looks like um, in terms of policy procedure and how it plays out in campuses. Mm. Uh, as well, I also had a few friends, um, actually many friends who experienced sexual violence while they were students. So there is an emotional impact there as well. 
And uh, can you give us a brief overview of what you've been looking at in your doctoral research and what is Project Cursive? Yeah, so Project Cursive is just the acronym I've given my doctoral research. It stands for uh, Comparing University Responses to Sexual Violence. Um, And that's basically what my project is. So I'm looking at how universities in the United States and in England respond to student disclosures of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Uh, I'm doing this at three levels. So first at the policy level, so I can understand uh, what is intended. Mm. Then at the staff implementation level, so how does staff actually carry out policy? Mm. And finally, at the um, student experiential level, so how do uh, students who report sexual violence or harassment actually experience institutional responses? So Mm. I've been looking at um, doing kind of a discourse analysis of policies, understanding the language that's used and how this actually carries out, um, as well as interviewing staff at five universities in both countries uh, and speaking with students who have volunteered themselves uh, to speak with me about what it was like to report to their universities. Okay, and uh, a discourse analysis is just critically examining the language, like you said, right? Yes, absolutely. And it's also about deconstructing power to a certain extent. Um, so who gets to write policy and what are the goals of that? That's very interesting. And uh, how bad is the problem of sexual violence on American and English campuses? I mean, I was a student recently and I'm aware, but um, just to give us an overview. So it is, um, it's very prevalent uh, in both countries uh, and and on campuses everywhere. So um, about... 30% of U.S. students of all genders will experience some form of sexual harassment or violence before they graduate. That's according to a 2015 study, uh, the AAU Campus Climate Survey, which is the largest study ever conducted in the U.S. Mm. Um, England does not have as much quantitative data, so we're a little bit limited. Uh, We don't, I don't think we fully yet understand the scope of sexual violence that's occurring at English universities, but from the research that does exist, Um, I believe the 2012 National Union of Students uh, report, uh, 2010, sorry about that. Um, I believe they found that one in seven female students who had participated would experience um, or had experienced a very severe sexual assault before graduating. Mm -hmm. And about 25% of the female uh, respondents had experienced any form of sexual violence. And um, one of these, I remember looking at some of your research writings, and one of these also talks about trans students and how trans students are super vulnerable on campuses uh, when it comes to sexual Mm -hmm. violence as well, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I had, um, out of my seven English student participants, three of them were Mm non-binary, which means that they don't identify as, um, you know, a cisgender woman um, or a cisgender man. They are somewhere in between that binary or completely outside of it. And they use they, them pronouns. Mm. Um, So that's a very significant part of my sample is non-binary students. In the US, uh, out of the 12 students who spoke to me, uh, one of them was a trans woman. And trans students face um, a lot more discrimination as well when reporting um, if they are out as trans. Uh, Some of my non-binary participants were not necessarily out to their universities. Um, But the trans woman who spoke to me in the US absolutely was. And when she reported to her university police, 
police about what had happened to her. Uh, the university police consistently dead named her. So using the name that she no longer uses, uh, mm. would not use her correct name. Um, basically blamed her and would was very much um, intimidating and really, really awful, com- uh, very much misgendered her all the time. So using the wrong pronouns. Mm-hmm. So it's a, an- another level of violence that trans students tend to face when they're reporting any kind of sexual violence, um, if the institution is not sensitive to their needs. What I found really interesting about what you're looking at is this, uh, this, idea of the neoliberal university and how that ties in with how you know the universities that you're looking at in America and in England they fit this uh, this model of a neoliberal university and how that interacts with how they treat sexual violence on campus so can you explain that a little bit what is a neoliberal university and um How does that interact with sexual violence? Yeah. So neoliberalism in my field of research right now is a very sexy topic. Um, It's (laughs) kind of uh, what's in to talk about, if that makes sense. But that doesn't mean that it's not relevant for uh, what I'm finding. So neoliberalism, it's kind of hard to define. Uh, Many academics actually don't define it. Um, And I believe Alison Phipps says it's kind of like a catch-all for anything that we find negative. Mm. But I'm using it in a very specific way. Um, So basically, the universe, the neoliberal university in my research is a university that operates like a business. So it's using market logic um, Mm -hmm. to operate, uh, which means that it sees students as consumers as opposed to students um, Mm -hmm. and lecturers as commodities. Um, And this kind of sets up a dynamic where universities are very much fighting for resources. They are fighting for recognition. They want to be known as the best um, in order to continue recruiting students um, and keeping their income. This also means that there is a high level of performativity, which Stephen Ball um, describes as, you know, we have to, as academics, constantly report on what we're doing as opposed Mm. to actually doing it. And so this means that universities are kind of obsessed with showing what they're doing as opposed to actually doing it. Now, how this interacts with sexual violence um, and responses to that in universities, Alison Phipps again coined the phrase institutional airbrushing to describe how um, neoliberal universities um, operating like businesses will tend to cover up negative things like reports of sexual violence because they need to appear lawless in order to continue recruiting enough students to operate. So there is very much an incentive to appear as if there is no issue with sexual violence. Mm. Um, And something else that I've found, um, as opposed to hiding what's ugly, they also try to highlight what's positive. Um, Mm. There's kind of a geographic split, which we can get into in a bit if you're interested in that. Um, But some some English universities will kind of position themselves as um, leaders against sexual violence. So that Mm. means they'll draft policies that look really great on paper so they can point to that and say, hey, we're doing this work. Your students, uh, you know, your children will be safe if they come here and study with us. So ultimately, if they're trying, if universities are using institutional airbrushing, they're covering up what's ugly, reports of sexual violence, or they are positioning themselves as a leader against sexual violence. Um, the end goal is the same. It's to make themselves attractive to um, potential students and potential and parents of potential students so they can keep their income. Yeah, I mean, considering how much, uh, how expensive education is becoming constantly in these two countries and how important it is for universities, well, important in the term of uh, policy, how, how important they see it to recruit international students. And I think in America, 
just tuition fees is ridiculous to portray oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah to portray <laughs> this image of the perfect campus or the perfect place for you know an 18 year old to start their adult life so that makes sense um how do american and english universities respond to student disclosures of sexual violence right so that is um the main difference that i'm looking at in my study because uh, the two countries have comparable victimization rates as we kind of talked about earlier in the podcast um as well as student cultures mm. both western countries you see the same demographics of students who are attending university overwhelmingly female generally middle class or above um with some working class students attending as well course um, and typically white as well. So in terms of how they differ, the US currently has um Title IX as I mentioned before, which is a federal framework for how they should respond. Um while England does not have anything set in stone, they don't have any national framework currently. Um they are working towards creating one. Mm-hmm. In 2016, um Universities UK, which is an oversight body of somewhere around 130 in, uh UK universities, came out with a report uh, called Changing the Culture which was about the issue of sexual violence in universities and how they could tackle it moving forwards mm. um, but that's not federal law in the same way that Title IX is so universities don't have to follow the guidance um, kind of suggested there where they do have to follow Title IX in the US uh, Title IX is very much legalistic it um, depends on the current administration how it's going to be enforced So under Obama um it was actually it, they tried really hard to improve those processes um then Vice President Joe Biden was very much involved with the It's on Us campaign so it was very high up on the national policy agenda um and tried to make those processes more comfortable for survivors so it would mm-hmm. try to eliminate things like cross examination by a per- an alleged perpetrator of um a student reporting mm. and it would say okay accommodations should be granted and they should make the life of the survivor the one reporting a lot easier so if you're going to move someone um out of a residence hall it should be the perpetrator and not the survivor um we don't currently have that level of kind of consideration in the US at the moment I don't think Betsy DeVos our current education secretary has finalized what her guidance is but it's very much about protecting the accused student at the moment uh she thinks that the Obama administration swung too far in uh protecting the uh survivor and now that she wrongly sees this as um accused students not having um enough rights so that's what's going on in the US at the moment um mm. England universities can respond in however way they see fit basically so there's no kind of standard in terms of um what um evidentiary standard they would need to use in a student conduct investigation or a complaint process uh there is no consequences if they don't actually respond in a certain way which allegedly in the US there are um the office of civil rights in the US which is the body that oversees title 9 can potentially revoke an institution's federal funding if they fail to comply with title 9 mm. so there are um consequences in the US allegedly i don't know i don't think that any university has actually lost its federal funding even when there's been multiple title 9 complaints Mm. But uh yeah so that's the main difference there is a set process in the US with alleged consequences whereas in England it's kind of a, on a university by university basis It's interesting that in the US it's it depends on the current administration 
uh, as opposed to being something that is going to stay constant despite regime change. What uh, what mm-hmm. does Betsy Devos uh, think? Uh, what rights does she think that the accused don't have that she wants to compound? Oh gosh. Um, so Betsy DeVos thinks that accused students um, need more protection. And I'm not exactly sure um, what rights she thinks they're missing, but she wants to basically give them even more opportunities to defend themselves in campus proceedings. So that would look like um, the ability to bring in an attorney to um, a campus conduct proceeding, which is kind of ridiculous in my opinion. Hmm. Um, It also looks like making standards of evidence, um, which basically means in the US at least, um, how do we determine if someone is responsible for something, right? So in a criminal court, uh, the standard of evidence is beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. Um, at the civil court, it's usually preponderance of the evidence or more likely than not, which is what um, universities tend to use. It's basically mm. 50% and a feather. It's more likely than not that somebody did this than, yeah. Mm. Um, so she wants um, to raise, potentially raise standards of evidence to um, the standard in between more likely than not and Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. There sits uh, clear and convincing, which if we're looking on a scale of zero to 100, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt being 99%, more likely than not being 51%, clear and convincing is around 75%. So it's um, putting the burden back on the university to really have enough evidence to um, charge or penalize a student accused of sexual violence. So she wants to do that. Um, She does want to allow um, cross-examination of um, survivors potentially by perpetrators, Mm. which is an incredibly re-traumatizing thing to have to not only be in the same room with the person who harmed you, but have them, you know, intimidate you and try to make you defend your account of what happened to that person's face. Uh, And she's also limiting what cases universities would be responsible for. So she uh, wants universities to only only handle um, cases of sexual violence that happen on campus or in university-owned property. So that eliminates any student who lives off campus in their own rented accommodation um, from basically accessing campus support, uh, which is a big problem because a lot of sexual violence occurs in a student's living area. Mm-hmm. So if they're living off campus in a non-university-owned accommodation, then they don't really have the same rights as someone who um, might experience sexual violence in a dorm room. That's just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> some of that just, this, I, I just never understand this uh, idea of making the person who's accused cross-examine the person who's making the allegation. I mean, that just sounds draconian. So I, I, know. I just <laughs> do not understand when policymakers try to push that. But um, moving on, what are the criticisms of Title IX and, uh, and the English model? Uh, you've touched upon Title IX, but of the English model as it is right now. Mm-hmm. So criticisms of Title IX um, is that it's very legalistic. Mm. Uh, there's not really root, like wiggle room to find um, all alternate routes to justice. So things that don't involve potentially um, penalizing a student found responsible for sexual violence. Um, For the um, English universities, a lot of criticism is there's no standardization and there is no accountability um, in how universities are supposed to be responding to reports. You know, again, it's left up to each individual university, which some people don't think is an issue. Um, However, there's no accountability if they fail in some way. There's no kind of set criteria that says 
um, universities should be doing X, Y, and Z in protecting students who have experienced sexual violence. Um, And so that becomes an issue. And what is the benefit of studying the comparative framing of responses in the universities in the US and England? I think it offers um, kind of room to look at how do places with similar student populations respond in such different ways? Um, so Title IX has existed since the 1970s in the U.S., um, and it's been used to cover uh, sexual violence on campus since the early 2000s, but more so we're looking at the 2010s. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of dominated the U.S. imagination of what justice looks like in these cases, right? Because it's what exists. Mm. Um, but if we look at England, which doesn't have something set up like that, I think it allows um, Americans to kind of get an idea of what could justice look like that's not you know, a, a student conduct investigation, that's not suing a university for a Title IX complaint. Mm -hmm. And in the same way for England, um, looking at U.S. um, responses that work under a national framework, what are the benefits of having a national framework? How can this help universities respond in a more consistent way? Um, How can survivors have uh, an opportunity to lodge a complaint um, with a a national body? Because that does exist in the U.S. and it doesn't exist in England at the moment. Um, But then also learning from the drawbacks of a national framework. Um, How can they avoid that if they want to use something that's a little bit more standardized moving forward? So what have you found so far about how policy borrowing can help? I think basically I would like to see a combination of the two systems. I think that would probably make the most sense. So universities in the US and England right now are kind of treating um, very much uh, kind of legalistic processes versus cultural change, which is more the English model. Um, as two separate entities, right? They don't interact. um, And I think that cultural change is very important uh, because otherwise we're not really going to see any any change um, in how uh, we respond to sexual violence or even if uh, sexual violence is allowed to occur. Mm. Um, But I also think that we need those processes in place that kind of allow students to access justice in whatever way they see fit. So that's, I kind of see like the middle ground between the two of them. So having those processes in place while also understanding that process by itself is not enough to do cultural change, whereas cultural change by itself is not enough to ensure that students will receive justice when these um, instances of violence do happen. Your study, where you're looking at staff members, uh, how they enforce these rules and you're looking at how students experience these rules uh you've it's it's a qualitative study right um you've spoken Mm -hmm. to is it 44 staff members uh no so 26 staff members and 19 students right okay okay and what's that been like just that process of getting that in-depth qualitative data yeah um so qualitative data more generally just uh do you want to know about speaking with staff specifically or students or just um, overall overall would be good Okay. Um, I think at the beginning, I really had to build up stamina because making sure that I was speaking to people for an hour, which was basically my kind of ideal interview time, Mm -hmm. um, that can be kind of difficult, uh, as I'm sure you know, running this (laughs) podcast. Um, (laughs) I had semi-structured interviews, which meant that I came in with a set list of questions, but then uh, told my participants, I also have the flexibility to follow up on things that you bring up. Um, And 
I'll follow your lead based on, you know, what, what you say. I don't need to follow the exact order of these questions. Mm. Um, so I think that process was difficult at the beginning, um, just until I got a feel for um, how do I really listen so I can ask good follow up questions? Um, while also, you know, if I take notes, how do I do so in a way that doesn't stop me from listening to what the person is saying? Mm. And I think there is definitely an emotional component to it as well, given the subject matter. Um, interviews with students tended to be more difficult, as you might imagine, because mm. there are people who did experience sexual violence. And even though I made a point to not ask them about that experience. I yeah. only wanted to know what it was like for them to report to their universities. Sometimes they would share that with me. And so being able to hold those experiences as I continued on in my research, um, it was difficult uh, because you don't really know where you can put that baggage down. Uh, mm. So I was carrying a lot of that with me at all times. But um, I thought it was a really meaningful way to be able to hear uh, people's accounts um, from themselves uh, to interview them and kind of let them tell their own stories. Hmm. I was going to ask you that if there's been any emotional impact of this research on you and how you balance your emotional well-being with your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely was. I started data collection around this time last year, maybe a little bit before. And last autumn <laughs> was very difficult for me. Um, I don't think I knew the extent to which I would be impacted by the work. Um, mm. I thought that because I wasn't going to be asking students about um, the experience of violence itself, it would be a lot easier. Mm. But what I didn't anticipate was um, that institutional responses can be just as devastating um, mm. as violence and a form of violence in and of themselves. So I think that was what kind of took me by surprise, even though intellectually I, I was aware that the students who would be speaking with me were students who experienced really bad um, university responses, right? Because a student who had an okay response from a university or a really good response from a university was not going to seek out an, an independent researcher to anonymously contribute their story to a study. So intellectually, I knew that. Emotionally, I wasn't prepared for what that actually would look like for me. Um, so in terms of how I handled that, I spoke a lot to my supervisor, who was incredibly supportive. She is also engaged in similar research, so she could kind of help me, give me tips on what worked for her. And um, she was very much supportive of me taking breaks when I needed to, which I think is kind of uncommon in PhD settings. There's a very much a culture of overwork um, mm. and, you know, never take a break. There's always more that you can be doing. And she said, no, you absolutely should take a break. Um, don't worry about it. You're not going to be, uh, you're not going to get anything done if you run yourself into the ground. So I thought that was really important as well. Um, mm. Yeah, and just reaching out and kind of processing that with um, friends and family in an, an, in an anonymous way, of course, where I didn't identify any of my yeah. participants to them. Uh, and what you said about these students that you spoke to having had traumatizing experiences of university responses, reading your work so far and you've looked at... Uh, you know, how reputation plays a big role mm -hmm. in how authorities respond to people who are making, you know, who are reporting instances of sexual violence. So can you talk more about that, how reputation comes into this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that is something that activists have said for years. If you look up any kind of news article yeah. where um, a survivor or a survivor activist is speaking about university responses, 
something they'll say is the university is prioritizing the reputation of the of itself um, over its students, and that means that we're not getting justice. Um, so. I, it's not a new argument by any means. It just might be one of the first ones that has an empirical data set to say, yeah, this is actually what's happening. Um, so reputation, I think, for neoliberal universities is the most important form of currency they have, right? It's um, it's about how they can market themselves and position themselves as the best, Um so they can still continue getting students um, to come and enroll and to come and give them money uh, so they can win grants to continue doing uh, leading research. If it's a research intensive university, mm. um, if it, if we're talking about athletics in the United States, division one is the most competitive collegiate athletic branch. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of money in that. And there is also a lot of money um, because those students tend to go on to become professional athletes. So if one of those athletes commits sexual violence, they're going to be very loath to actually do anything about it, uh, which was the case in uh, one of the students' stories who spoke with me. Um, so yes, reputation is ultimately what matters. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's been kind of two main ways that universities are using reputation in response to sexual violence. So they can either pretend that it's not happening by suppressing reports. Mm -hmm. um, a few of my students, especially in the US, were discouraged from reporting uh, to the extent that one of my participants actually has two separate retaliation cases open against staff members who uh, were trying to actually make her life worse because she reported a lab mate for um, sexual harassment and stalking. Oh. Um, yes. Um, and because he was going to be an up and coming academic superstar. Mm -hmm. So of course they were going to prioritize him over her. It also looks like anti-liability policies. Uh, so the connection there is, you know, if there is uh, less that universities can actually do to respond, there's going to be less, uh, fewer lawsuits and fewer lawsuits translates to a better reputation because especially in the US, uh, sexual violence on campus is incredibly publicized and incredibly politicized. Um, so if there is a lawsuit, usually it's, it's picked up in the mainstream media. Mm. Uh, in England specifically, oh, sorry, were you going to ask something? Yeah, I was just going to say that it sounds almost, um, you know, counterintuitive because when you are personally for myself and I think of university I look at you know researchers like yourself who are doing all of this research and looking at how can we uh, tackle sec sexual violence better and then you almost expect better understanding and better frameworks and you know in an education setting but it sounds like it you know a university campus is a reflection of what society is as well and how society tackles with sexual violence where the reputation is a currency in how the the accused is is treated and how you know they're almost preserved yeah absolutely and i mean that's something that i've found in my research as well um the presence of researchers working on sexual violence specifically in universities, universities will point to those people and their work, um, or our work, I should say, and say, look, we have people who are studying this, we are cutting edge in our responses. But whether or not they actually make policy that then reflects what those researchers are finding is very much a different story. Mm -hmm. um, one staff member at an English university um, who has a background as a practitioner, so she did not work in higher education uh, before getting this specialist role. She was um, an independent 
gender-based violence um, oh, advisor. So an ICVA. Um, so she's someone who works with um, like local charities and helps those who have experienced gender-based violence. Um, she pointed out that the people who make policies in universities don't then speak to the researchers they have on staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not the policies that they make might look good on paper, but they're not actually research informed. Mm-hmm. They're very much reactionary to what's in the press. Um, and this was a university that had a pretty publicized negative case. Um, so yeah, she saw her university's policy creation as a reactive process that was not actually trying to be based in evidence um, or existing research. Mm, wow. That's just, uh, that's very disappointing to hear, honestly, having been a yeah. student recently. Um, so what what is it like doing this PhD research, I mean, and just doing a PhD in sexual violence, uh, how have you found it so far? And how have you found it as a transition from doing a master's degree? You know, my my question basically is, what is it like to do a PhD? (laughs) What is it like to do a PhD? Yeah. Um, So English universities um, have very different structures to uh, some other universities when it comes to PhD programs. We are basically allotted, at my university at least, three years that are completely unstructured other than you need to meet with your supervisor every six weeks to check in and make sure you're on track. Um, And we have progress reports at the end of each academic year, which um, determine whether or not we can uh, then progress on to the next year. But basically, we're given three to four years of completely unstructured time um, to do a research project in. So for me, I think one of the most important things that I've learned in the PhD is um, project management skills. The amount of Excel sheets I have just um, outlining what I need to do when and, uh, you know, if I've done what task and when do I need that done by Mm. um, is ridiculous (laughs) and not something that I was anticipating um, when I came into the program, but it's been really helpful in terms of managing a project. Um, It can be emotionally intense, as I mentioned before, um, just sitting with this data um, and obviously reading about it. it, It's it's hard. Um, It is emotionally kind of devastating at times. But yeah, I think something that helps with that is speaking to people, finding other people who are doing similar research and finding that community. um, So you can kind of vent with them and say, this is what's going on. How have you guys um, coped with this in the past? Is there anything that you think I should be doing with this? I found that to be incredibly useful. Hmm. So process of doing a PhD is, um, yeah, it can be really intense, but it's, I think it's very empowering to be able to structure your own time in such a way. Hmm. And do such meaningful research. That's amazing. Um, what do future projects look <laughs> what do future projects look like for you um do you want to go down this research path any further or um you just want to take a break and move on to the next thing i'm definitely going to continue researching um this topic i have a few ideas in mind but since i'm not employed yet i'm going to unfortunately have to keep those to myself <laughs> so i can hopefully get funded as a postdoc right. to do those research ideas um but yes i do plan on continuing um in academia hopefully as a researcher researcher so we will see what that looks like in about a year and a half or so 
Amazing. So a year and a half more of tying this research together and um, publishing it. That's mm-hmm. exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. But really, thank you. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for your time. We are recording on a Saturday. So thank you for giving up your precious week in time. And uh, thank you for doing this <laughs> incredible research and, you know, really shedding the light on such an important thing. So thank you so much, Erin. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Okay, that was Erin Shannon and this was episode four. So thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions for improvement about the podcast, please leave a review if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or you can tweet at us. We are at talk underscore research and we update every Sunday. So next Sunday, we're talking about gendered violence in India for episode five with a very exciting guest. So check back then. And really, thank you for listening. It really means a lot to see the numbers around this podcast. Um, Thank you. I am Asmita and this is Talking Research.